I believe in America. Hello, my name's Forrest, Forrest Gump. The world is changed. People are always asking me if I know Tyler Durden. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Forget about opening lines. This is probably the most famous opening word in all of cinema. Rosebud. Perhaps the most recognizable utterance in all of film. This year marks the 75th anniversary of Citizen Kane's premiere. And in the years since, Orson Welles' debut picture has become one of the most written about films in the history of the art. Other titles that might challenge it would include Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Perhaps those films have generated so much analysis because they've been around so long. Longer than, say, James Cameron's Avatar, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, or George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. But either way, for each of those films, much of the analysis centres around single sequences. The Odessa steps, the shower scene, the cut from the tumbling bone to the spaceship. Citizen Kane is different. There isn't one standout moment for writers to analyse, because paradoxically, Citizen Kane is crammed with standout moments. Kane's death with the paperweight smashing to the floor, the news on the march montage, Kane's parents signing the document that sends him away to Mr. Thatcher, Kane losing a million dollars a year, Kane securing the staff of the Chronicle, Kane's election speech, the breakfast table sequence, Susan's opera debut, Susan's attempted suicide, Kane smashing up Susan's bedroom, the revelation of the mystery surrounding Rosebud. Is there any other film that boasts such a roster? For all that has been written and said about Wells' film, it is well nigh impossible to find something new. So, if any of this sounds familiar, my apologies to both you and the person who said it originally. Mr. Thompson, you will be required to leave this room at 4.30 promptly. You will confine yourself, it is our understanding, to the chapters in Mr. Thatcher's manuscript regarding Mr. Kane. That's all I'm interested in. Thank you. Pages 83 to 142. Let me begin by reminding ourselves that as drawn up by Wells and co-writer Herman J. Mankiewicz, Citizen Kane was based in part on the life of newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst. But there are also traces of Alfred Harmsworth, the British newspaper baron, better known as Viscount Northcliffe, who pioneered tabloid journalism with the Daily Mail and the Daily Mirror. Then there was Joseph Pulitzer, whose penchant for scandal, sensationalism and unsubstantiated stories, designed specifically to scaremonger, i.e. yellow journalism, put him in direct competition with Hearst. I know you're tired, gentlemen, but I brought you here for a reason. I think this little pilgrimage will do us good. Chronicle's a good newspaper. The Chronicle's a good idea for a newspaper. Notice the circulation. 495,000, mm -hmm. but Mr. Kane, look who's working for the Chronicle. With them fellas, it's no trick to get circulation. You're right, Mr. Bernstein. You know how long it took the Chronicle to get that staff together? 20 years. 20 years. Among the similarities between Kane and Hearst, it is often repeated that Rosebud was the pet name Hearst gave to the genitalia of his partner, Marion Davies. Released in 1941, Kane was made under the stern eye of the Hayes Code, where such sexual references were prohibited. But since no one in the wider public knew of the connection, it passed without comment. So let us forget why Wells and Mankiewicz used the word, and instead just focus on the word itself. Rosebud is more than the opening word in Citizen Kane. It is the opening word to Orson Welles' film career, a flowering. 
For the film, the petals are just like the flashbacks. As each one unfolds, so too does the story, gradually revealing more and more layers to its scented mystery. Wells himself was just 25 years old when his film career blossomed. But bear this in mind, when Kane himself takes over the newspaper offices, he is exactly the same age as Wells was. So perhaps it is worth considering that Kane was not only inspired by newspaper tycoons, but by Wells's own life. Just as he did in the second picture, The Magnificent Ambersons, Wells depicts a childhood where a mother was the determining influence, and the father was an ineffectual figure. Wells's own father, Richard, was an alcoholic who drank himself to death. But not unlike the young Kane, Orson was barely 15 when he inherited a small fortune from his father whose earnings had come from having invented a bicycle lamp. And just like Kane, young Orson scampered across the Atlantic for a whistle-stop tour of Europe. And just like Kane was a profligate Don Juan, so too was Wells Lothario, whose athleticism sometimes got in the way of his theatre and radio productions. And those productions were not without their financial difficulties. Well, I happened to see your financial statement today, Charles. Oh, did you? Now, tell me honestly, my boy. Don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise, this inquirer that's costing you a million dollars a year? You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. Then, on top of the stress of breaking even, let alone turning a profit, there were the all-night rehearsals and last-minute rewrites. Sally! Sally! Yes, Mr. Kane? Here's an editorial, Sally. I want you to run it in a box on the front page. This morning's front page, Mr. Kane? That's right, Sally. That means we're going to have to remake again, doesn't it, Sally? Yes. You'd better go down and tell them. But let's get back to Rosebud. It seemed for a while that Wells' career would be a giant bouquet of endless blooms. On August the 14th, 1936, when Wells was but a wee lad of 21, he staged a groundbreaking production of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Performing it in Harlem's Lafayette Theatre, Wells switched the witchcraft from the Scottish Highlands to the Royal Haitian Court of Saint-Henri-Christophe. The next year, he founded the Mercury Theatre, and within months had surpassed the Macbeth success with an even more groundbreaking production of another Shakespeare play, Julius Caesar. Wells took the historical drama and, instead of changing its physical setting, changed it temporarily keeping it in Rome but updating it from the times of the ancient empire to modern-day fascist Italy, where the mob murderers become Mussolini's secret police. But just as importantly, if you go online and Google his lighting scheme for the play, you will not only notice the striking similarities between the stage lights and the Nazi rally in Nuremberg in 1934, but you will also see how they inspired the lighting scheme for Citizen Kane. Well, what do you think of the chances for war in Europe? Uh, I've talked with the responsible leaders of the great powers, England, France, Germany and Italy. They're too intelligent to embark on a project which would mean the end of civilization as we now know it. You can take my word for it. There'll be no war. Another blossoming was Wells' career on radio, where he had a weekly slot on CBS. Beginning on July the 11th, 1938, the Mercury Theatre on the air went out each Monday evening, with Wells and his troupe adapting famous novels. Bram Stoker's Dracula, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, Alexander Dumas' The Count of Monte Cristo, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Those sprawling narratives, whittled down to one-hour pieces, proved popular with listeners, and in September, CBS decided to switch the show to a Sunday slot. Coming to the end of October, 
Wells was 17 weeks into his run when he decided to tackle H.G. Wells' sci-fi classic, The War of the Worlds. Sunday, October the 30th, 1938, was the night before Halloween, and Wells decided to deliver a practical joke. However, he did take care to begin the broadcast by stating very clearly that this was a work of fiction. Yet, within half an hour, millions of Americans were reaching for their shotguns in order to repel what they assumed was a bona fide Martian invasion. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Oh, Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! Oh, the whole field's caught up by the woods. The fires, the, the gas heading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. Almost at once, Hollywood was calling. Here is Wells recounting how he wound up signing a deal with Orkeo Studios. It was extraordinary in the, in the control it gave me over my own material. So much so that the rushes, uh, as I'm sure you understand, and uh, are always checked by everybody in the studio, department heads and the bankers and uh, distributors and everything, long before there's a rough cut. But according to the terms of my contract, the rushes couldn't be seen by anyone. And indeed, the film couldn't be seen until it was ready for release. I got that good a contract because I didn't really want to make a film. And you know, when you don't really want to go out to Hollywood, or at least this was true in the old days, or the golden days of Hollywood, when you honestly didn't want to go, yes. then, then the deals got better and better. In my case, I didn't want money. I wanted authority. So I asked the impossible, hoping to be left alone. And at the end of a year's negotiations, I got it. Uh, my, my love for films began only when we started work. But the real point here is that Wells' radio work is crucial in appreciating Kane. Cinema wasn't even 50 years old when Wells arrived in Hollywood. And for 29 of those years, film had been silent. Which is from when the cliché, film is a visual medium, dates. Film has not been a visual medium ever since the release of The Jazz Singer in 1927. To say otherwise shows you're missing half the picture. The other half is sound. And when he realised that Wells had spent the better part of a year adapting books for his radio show, trying to figure out how you paint a picture not with a camera and lights, but with a microphone and a volume dial, you cannot but hear his thought process. But the brilliant thing about Citizen Kane is that with it, Wells delivers something that could not exist in a novel, on the stage or a radio broadcast. Which means he had not only reinvented himself yet again as an artist, but he had also completely reinvented an entire art form. All too often, film had been considered an extension of the novel, or a medium that merely adapted stage plays. But the structure and execution of Citizen Kane shows that it could only exist in film. Can you have overlapping dialogue in a novel? What is the equivalent of a crane shot in a radio broadcast? Can you cut to a close-up in a play? No, the way Wells invented Kane meant it could only ever exist in cinema. It stands high above other films because, like all art, its real test isn't so much comparison as it is repetition. How often can you watch it, by which I mean stress test it, and how resilient is it to your examination? Does it still hold up? Like I said, Kane is three quarters of a century old, but it doesn't look, sound or feel 
a day older than it did the day it was released. To pull that off, Wells had to bring to bear all that was contained in Shakespeare's observation, brevity is the soul of wit. His radio adaptations had been fleet of foot, condensing narrative, compressing plot, conflating characters. All he could to squeeze as much as possible from a novel and then pour its essence into his CBS show. Turns out that those weekly broadcasts were rehearsals for his film career, as indeed was his experience in the theatre. He was always working for the best writings. Shakespeare, Dickens, Dumas, Bronte. And it obviously paid off. Just Mr. Bernstein, in. I'd like you to meet Mr. Thatcher. I'll just How do you do, Mr. Thatcher? Leland, uh, Hello. Mr. Thatcher, my ex-guardian. We have no secrets from our readers, Mr. Bernstein. Mr. Thatcher is one of our most devoted readers. He knows what's wrong with every copy of the Inquirer since I took over. Read the cable. Girls delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. Although Kane was met with critical approval when it was first released, it didn't fare all that well at the box office. In fact, it has never been all that popular with audiences. Critics, filmmakers, historians, academics, yes. But members of the public, Certainly, it doesn't connect as other films do from the same era. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, The Wizard of Oz and Casablanca. In cinematic terms, it is a bit like James Joyce's Ulysses. More people know of its status than have actually read it. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, The Wizard of Oz and Casablanca each connect on an emotional level, tapping into a mythological realm that is familiar to all of us. But Citizen Kane is something else, something cerebral. It is more a cinematic dictionary, an encyclopedia, a how-to manual, something for filmmakers to study, rather than for audiences to celebrate. Here is Martin Scorsese talking in his three-part documentary, Journey Through American Cinema. Some in Hollywood were so incensed that they put pressure on RKO to destroy the negative. Fortunately, they, they didn't succeed. Wells was like a young magician, enchanted by his own magic. In fact, the most revolutionary aspect of Citizen Kane was its self-consciousness. The style drew attention to itself. Rosebud. Now this contradicted the classical ideal of the invisible camera and seamless cuts. Wells used every narrative technique and filmic device deep focus, high and low angles, wide angle lenses. I want to use the motion picture camera as an instrument of poetry, he said. And somehow Wells's passion for the medium became the great excitement of the piece itself. Back to Hearst. As America's largest newspaper tycoon, he was one of the most powerful and influential people in the entire country. So when he got wind of the film's content, he threatened not only the film and Orkeo Studios, but all the other studios and every studio head as well. He let it be known, in no uncertain terms, that his newspapers would run lots of disparaging stories on the ethnic and religious backgrounds of the Hollywood moguls. Anti-Semitism had already given rise to fascism in Europe, and they had already unleashed a war there. And here was Hearst prepared to unleash his own brand of bigotry. In response, and on behalf of all the other studios, Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, went to George Schaefer, the head of RKO, offering a cheque to cover the entire production cost of Citizen Kane. If, 
Schaefer agreed to burn the negative. Despite the pressure from all his industry peers, Schaefer stood firm. A masterpiece was saved and cinema, culture and the US Constitution was upheld. Poetic when you think about it. Citizen Kane is about a tyrant and Orkeo was exercising its First Amendment. And yet, for all that, just as Rosebud was the mystery that drove the whole film, it is still a mystery as to how, despite Wells having delivered a film that redefined cinema, did it come to pass that Citizen Kane is not the film that defined Wells' career in Hollywood. No, it wasn't success that defined him, it was failure. And after his career had blossomed so brilliantly, it soon followed the fate of Kane's sled. (laughs) 